All right, I think we can get started. I can barely see you guys, just so you know. Um, I'm also getting used to having glasses, so um, it's an extra thing. Um, all right, well, I'm glad to see you here. Uh, my plan for today is to spend some time talking and then to have some Q&A and conversation and kind of see where it takes us. Um, I also should say I'm kind of test driving new material here, so um, you're my guinea pigs, so thank you for doing this. Um, also, I should introduce myself, so I'm Alyssa Wilkinson. I um, am a professor at the King's College downtown, which is a little tiny liberal arts Christian college um, in the financial district, and I also am the film critic at Vox, with a V.com. Um, but before I joined Vox about a year and a half ago, I was the chief film critic at Christianity Today for a while and wrote for kind of everybody else, Rolling Stone and New York Magazine and those places. Um, so film is what I think about professionally, but art is what I think about in the classroom. Um, and in particular, how we um, think about what art is uh, and how we think about our interaction with it and then also how that interaction with art um, becomes different depending on who's making it, who's watching it, who's writing about it. Um, I'm kind of on a mission to sort of depoliticize that um, and this comes from working for um, a Christian outlet where people often made assumptions um, about films based on um, maybe partisan or sectarian concerns and then the same exact, exact thing happens when you move over to um, a different sort of outlet. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about. That's something that I want to talk about today with you um, and then hear kind of your thoughts uh, based on experiences that you've had. So that's what we're going to do. All right, so I have called this Did We Even See the Same Movie because I wrote an article um, in sort of a state of consternation the last week of last year to wrap up 2017. Um, and it came from my experiences writing about movies last year. Um, so there was, uh, there is always kind of a backlash cycle that happens with every movie. People see it, they praise it, then other people see it and they hate it. And then they say, you must be nuts or you know, the, the one that we film critics get a lot is, you, you know, Disney is paying you to praise their films, or the big conspiracy theory is that, let me see if I can get this right, that Marvel pays critics to pan DC films. I, I, if they are, I am not on that gravy train. Um, but the question is, like, do we actually see the same movie when we watch movies together? And the answer is yes but also no. Um, and so thinking about how those two things interact I think helps us think better about how uh, film and art in general can be a place for us to come together and have conversations, um, but also how we should think about the making of it and the talking about it. Um, so the place we actually have to start <laughs> is what is art, which is a hilarious question that nobody has been able to answer for all of human history, but I'm gonna answer it this morning. Um, and we have to start here I think because it is most helpful to think about movies as an art form. They are also other things. They can be propaganda, they can be um, uh, sort of the giant ATM in the sky version of a movie, which is where the studio makes a movie because they know it'll make a ton of money and then it's just bad. But that doesn't mean that they don't still work like art. Um, so when I say art, I'm not using that as a value judgment, I'm just saying it's a form of thing that exists in the world. 
and movies are an art form. And interestingly, I think art operates um, differently than any other form of culture. So culture, according to Andy Crouch, is what humans make of the world. And art is a product of culture. Um, but it operates and acts in human culture in a way that's different from, say, a table, which could be a work of art, but it's really just a table, right? Or, or even a, a philosophy or um, a polemic or something like that. So this is the definition that I have been using for a while when I think about art, and I'm not going to totally die on this hill, but I think it's a pretty decent one at this point. Um, and it seems very simple, but I just want to break it down a little bit. So art is the thing humans make, which means it's a product of culture. So art is not naturally occurring. It's something that humans make. Humans have desires and experiences and histories that shape what they make. So that's all kind of embedded in there. It's the thing that humans make that's not complete until it has an audience. And this is the part that I think freaks people out a little bit. But what I mean by that is I can make a thing, but until an audience comes in and engages with it, it's not a complete thing yet. Um, if I write a novel and shove it in a drawer, which I have not done because novel writing seems to me to be the hardest thing ever, but perhaps you've done this. You write a novel, you shove it in a drawer. It is a novel. You've written a book. Um, but until someone else kind of comes and invests their own experience in it, I don't think it's a work of art. As soon as an audience arrives and invests their experience, whatever that means, it becomes a work of art. Part of the reason I really like this definition and I find it helpful is that C.S. Lewis wrote this um, really wonderful and totally underread book called um, An Experiment in Criticism. It's very short, and if you have never read it, I really recommend it. Um, it is not one of his theological books. It, it appears to have been written to kind of defend the fact that he was writing sci-fi and fantasy novels, um, but that's sort of back, it's sort of like defending his choice to do that. Um, but in it, he talks about how we should judge a book not based on its genre, but based on whether a good reader can give it a good reading. And then he goes on and talks about what is a good reader, what is a good reading. Um, he says a good reader um, is someone who, who uh, invests themselves in the book sacrificially as they encounter it, um, who tries to sort of um, give themselves over to the experience of the author um, and invest also their own self into the book. And a bad book is one that won't let you do that, whether it's by being um, too pat and polemical about what it says or maybe it's just badly written. There's all kinds of ways that it could be bad. So I find that helpful to sort of make larger and think about art in general. And then the second part of this is that it has both form and content. That may seem like extremely obvious to you, but it is helpful, especially as a critic, to remember that I am not merely thinking about the content of a thing or merely thinking about the form of a thing, but I'm somewhere in the interplay between them. Um, so to condemn a thing purely based on content would not be treating it as a work of art. And to not even pay attention to its content would also be not to treat it as a work of art. So art is the thing that humans make that is not complete until it has an audience. It has both form and content. Now I kind of want to peel that apart a little bit, and I'm really proud of my diagrams here, so um, please enjoy them. Um, okay, so how does this work? So that's the artist. I drew him. 
that's the artist. And so we have an artist, right? And maybe, I'm sure some of you are artists um, or you know, would like to be artists or something like that. Um, I usually have a classroom full of undergraduates and you know, a good number of them want to write plays or they're musicians or they draw or they write books or whatever. They're the artist. And, and the work of art starts with the artist. There is always someone who made it or some ones, which we'll get to in a minute. And the artist comes along and he, he or she makes a thing. And that is a thing that they have made. Um, it's a song, it's a painting, it's something like that. Then we have an audience. The audience comes and they invest themselves in the work of art. Hopefully the audience comes to the work of art without a lot of preconceived notions about what it should do how it should do it, what they're trying to take from it. When Lewis talks about good readers, he says expressly, basically, that this is not the person who shows up to the work of art expecting it to um, improve them. Like, you know, when you show up to read a book because you feel like it'll make you a more interesting person, that might actually be a, kind of a bad way to read a book, rather than pulling the book out and letting it do what it's going to do. So, that, so this work of art exists independently of the artist and independently of the audience, um, but kind of both, and we're both investing ourselves into it. And sometimes I might read a book by someone who has a very similar life experience to me, and I interpret it one way, and then someone else can come to it with a totally different experience and, and the work of art takes on a different shift or, or change there. And it, this is most obvious, I think, when we're looking at um, things like paintings, which don't really tell you how to look at them very much, right? If you read a book or watch a movie, you kind of have to go through it at the pace that the author dictated. But painting has indications for how you should look at it, but we all experience it differently. Um, and so we come away with different impressions about what it is. At that point, I think, this thing becomes a work of art. And it, before that, it's just, a, it's, just a, it's just an object. But it takes on this different cast. And the art itself becomes the place where the audience and the artist meet somehow. And this can happen across centuries, which is what makes art really cool. Um, I love to talk about this with students with regard to Shakespeare, um, partly because they're all nerds and they love Shakespeare. Um, but it's funny to watch a Shakespeare play in 2018 and know the context that Shakespeare or whoever wrote it in, um, but also see how the intervening years and experiences have shaped it in different ways and reshaped the way we even see the play. And of course, Shakespeare is famously the, the, the maker of art whose work kind of gets reinterpreted in many different ways. Um, and so what we wind up with is a play that is the same one that the Elizabethans were watching, but it's not the same one at all. It's a completely different work of art, and it's not just because it's staged differently, it's because what I bring to it as an audience member in 2018 is just different than whatever they were bringing to it. Um, and that has fundamentally altered what the work of art is in its entirety. So in the case of movies, which is the kind of art I am always thinking about, we end up with this artist is multi-headed. So I, if you're like, what about the auteur theory, which is like a film nerd thing, like I, I subscribe mostly to it, but really a work of film is uh, many people are, are kind of putting in their inputs. So you have your writers and your directors, you might, your producer might have exerted creative control, you have cinematographers, all these different kinds of people who are together making a movie. A movie is not a singly authored thing. Um, 
He goes along, they go along and make a movie. That is supposed to be a movie screen. And I, at times, picture sort of the filmmakers behind the screen, you know, which is completely wrong. They're not there, and in fact, it's usually being projected from the other direction, but just imagine it. Um, and then we have the audience, and the fun thing about when you watch a film in the theater is that there's many of you there, and that's why I think you should try to see movies in theaters. Um, they dwarf you, and also there's just a lot of people having simultaneous but also very different experiences of a film together. Um, the audience then brings themselves into the theater or possibly to the TV screen, however you're watching your film, um, invest themselves into the film. And so what we're kind of experiencing in a movie theater is many works of art happening at once that kind of look the same but also are slightly different. And I know this from personal experience because I go, before I was a critic, I just started kind of going to movies with my boyfriend, now my husband, and we would definitely see the same movie and then we would walk out and have had violently different reactions to this film. And maybe it's because there was something that he found troubling in it or it reminded him of something or I read the film a different way than he did um, and that contributed to us actually having like not just a different experience but kind of having experienced a different, a different thing itself. So then we end up with a work of art. And that's, that's what, how a movie becomes a work of art, um, is that we are investing different things in it as the audience. So that's the first part. We're gonna come back to that. The second part is this um, form and content thing, which I think is useful to think about. I'm actually gonna turn this slightly so I can make sure I see my notes. Um, this is the second thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, we have two parts to a work of art, the form and the content. And I think about this through terms um, kind of borrowed from phenomenologists, but by way of, I don't know if any of you have read James K. Smith's book, Imagining the Kingdom, which really gets into the weeds on some philosophers, but it's useful in thinking about how art works on us. So we have the content, which we tend to access with like kind of a more rational, like you evaluate this, like does this make sense? Did this actually happen? Did it happen the way that the movie says it happens? And then we have the form, which we experience in a more, in an aesthetic way, and that, a lot of people have argued, actually happens like on a gut level. Um, we, we, when you say a work of art moved you, you're, you're kind of using physical language to describe something that happens in the aesthetic form. So, so how I think about this is the content is the, the something said in the work of art. So um, if we take Romeo and Juliet, for instance, if you go look up Romeo and Juliet on Wikipedia, not that anyone would ever do that, but you could go look up Romeo and Juliet on Wikipedia and there's a summary of the plot. Um, that's the content. That's Romeo and Juliet. But if you only go read Wikipedia summaries of movies, like you have not watched the movie or watched the play or whatever, um, which I'm sure my students are, would want to quibble with, but you haven't, right? And I know this because I used to be a real wuss about horror movies. I've gotten better, but there's still kinds that I can't watch. But I'm still like curious what happens. So I, you know, I saw the trailer and I'm like, I could never watch that. But I go to Wikipedia and I read the plot summary specifically because there's no form to that, right? I'm just there for the content and it's not going to freak me out because I'm not experiencing it through this sort of 
aesthetic way. And the, the flip side of this is the form, which um, is the shape of the thing, the, the pacing of the thing. Sometimes it's um, the, the timing or all these sensory inputs that we get, those are the form. And that's why we go see a movie is because we want to be taken through the paces of it. We don't want to simply know what happens. And if all you want is to know what happens, then you're not there for the work of art at all. Lewis would call that a bad, a bad um, viewer or a bad reader. Uh, it, it's supposed to provoke emotional and visceral responses. So if we go to horror film, which I now love and think is great, I mean, the great thing about horror films is that people have incredibly illogical, visceral responses. People scream, right? We all know we're looking at a brightly lit screen with a fake thing that hasn't happened, right? When we're watching, if that, it's like not happening in front of us, but we still like yell or, you know, people like vomit in movies. Like this doesn't make sense when you think about it rationally, but on an aesthetic level, it's doing something down at the gut level um, that's not in our rational register. <clears throat> so those two pieces together have to be there for a thing to actually be a work of art. Just the story of Romeo and Juliet is not all that interesting, but then we can go see the high school production of it and experience one work of art. And then you can go watch like Baz Luhrmann's film of it, which has like gangsters and Leonardo DiCaprio and like guns and stuff and experience it. And there's still an iambic pentameter. It is the play, but you're going to experience it and take something different away from it. I think about what happened with Julius Caesar um, in Shakespeare in the Park last summer. I don't know if you heard this story, but they kind of cast a Trump looking person as Julius Caesar. And the reactions were you know, and it's like they didn't change anything. They just put a person there and suddenly the form changed and it took on a very different meaning that some people reacted to quite violently. Um, okay, so that's all great and now we know what art is, but then the question is why do we even bother going and experiencing it? And I think the best answer is, yeah, we want to feel something. Um, in the case of horror film, for instance, I have for a long time kind of contended that it's the only place where well, certain sort of segment of the population um, encounters and allows themselves to believe in something like the supernatural um, in a way that maybe some of us do in church on a regular basis, but horror film is one of the last places where you're allowed to believe in things like ghosts and spirits, even if it's only for about two hours, and just freak out or believe in the uh, deeply embodied nature of, of humans uh, and have responses to that in a way that used to only, or that used to belong to religion and now for a lot of people is not there anymore. Um, so other things though, we might experience tension, sadness, right? People cry at movies, um, a shock of recognition where you suddenly see yourself on screen and it, it changes the way you see your life. Um, tension, beauty, all of these things. And we could sit around at home and read the Wikipedia summaries, but we don't, because we want to actually experience that thing. <clears throat> um, when Lewis is writing about this, I'm not typically a person who cites C.S. Lewis all the time. I just think this book is really good, and I feel like I need that disclaimer. Um, but he says that our experience of the form is unquestionably a keen pleasure. Like, we were actually built to experience the pleasure that we do when we encounter a work of art. And we can even think about this in terms of, like, a symphony. 
I, I have, I don't cry at movies at all, but I have very nearly cried in performances of symphonies and at the ballet. Those are abstract, much more abstract forms, but there's something about the form of it itself that evokes something in me that I can't describe, um, and that is, that is something I'm apparently built for, something we're all built for. So we go through the work so that we can experience it, and this is important to wrap back to what I was saying before. This is so that we can experience it with our full humanity. Like, we're not brains on sticks. We're brains in bodies. Those bodies have histories and contexts and all of those things. And that's what we bring to a work of art, is not just my brain, but also my emotions, my soul, my body, all of those things. And I am there to feel all those things become integrated in a way that maybe doesn't happen in my ordinary day when I'm like typing at a screen all day. Um, Lewis, in his book, when he's answering the question of why do we bother with arts, and he's talking about novels mostly, um, is the nearest I've yet got to an answer is that we seek an enlargement of our being. We want to be more than ourselves. We want to see with other eyes, to imagine with other imaginations, to feel with other hearts as well as our own. In love, we escape from ourselves into one another. And I do see this painted a lot of times as um, empathy, right? There's like all this scientific evidence that engaging in art is supposed to make you a more empathetic person. However, some of history's greatest monsters have been really into art as well. So um, I like to temper that, but I do think that it's true if we're good at coming to a work of art. What we're not just looking for is empathy, but actually like a, a losing of oneself in a sense for a little while so that we can start to understand what it would be to be a different person um, and, and thereby hopefully understand what it is that the people around us are experiencing. Um, interestingly, Lewis is not the only one who's written about this. Um, Michael Shaben, who's a wonderful novelist, uh, has this great essay that was published, I think, in the LA Times and then reprinted in his book, Maps and Legends. And in it, he's trying to, I think it's called In Defense of Entertainment. Um, and he says, entertainment, as I define it, pleasure and all, remains the only sure means we have of bridging the gulf of consciousness that separates each of us from everybody else. The best response to those who would cheapen and exploit it is not to disparage or repudiate, but to reclaim entertainment as a job fit for artists and for audiences, a two-way exchange of attention, experience, and the universal hunger for connection. Um, and this is a guy who's written both Pulitzer-winning novels and also, I think, was a script doctor on Spider-Man 2. So like he's worked in, in both of those fields and wants to see entertainment um, as something that actually is where we kind of bridge the gap between us. That thing, that alienation that we experience, especially as moderns and, well, and postmoderns. Um, later he says, I would like to propose expanding our definition of entertainment to encompass everything pleasurable that arises from the encounter of an attentive mind with a page of literature. I really like that. And Roger Ebert says in many places things about this, but my favorite is we live in a box of space and time. Movies are windows in its walls. They allow us to enter other minds, not simply in the sense of identifying with the characters, although that is an important part of it, but by seeing the world as another person sees it. So why this all feels really important to me is partly that I see that the conversation around who gets to make art and shape art and who gets to experience it um, has often become 
politicized, right? I see these things that people write where well, they'll say, oh, this attempt to diversify in Hollywood, for instance, is some kind of a political ploy of some kind. And like for some people, it, it may actually be a political act, but it also has like a much bigger and I think more fundamentally interesting meaning, which is that um, as a business, we, Hollywood in particular, has um, said that there's basically one kind of experience that you're allowed to have um, through kind of one perspective. Um, and that's the one that gets funded, that's the one that gets privileged, that's the one that gets written about, and it's become so so prevalent for a hundred years that we kind of just accept it as true. And so there's a great move in independent film in particular to make sure that more voices are getting brought into those conversations, that there's, um, you know, attempts to uh, develop the kinds of skills and resources that people might need if they're, frankly, if they're not like white men of privilege to make movies. Um, and I think that works really well with what both Lewis and Shaben and Eber are talking about, which is that the purpose of art is not really to tell one kind of story, but for us to be able to engage with stories that are or are not like our own story, um, and thereby gain a larger view of the self, which is really interesting when we're thinking about all of these attempts. If we go back to thinking about how a movie works, and that it's not really finished until the audience comes and brings its own experience to the movie. Um, that's all great. There's a third piece to this though, which I think you will know why I think this is important for obvious reasons, which is what do critics do? So how do critics fit into that? And this is true for all of art, um, I think. And as a critic, this matters to me because it is literally my job. Um, but I think it should matter to all of us. So what do critics do? I think of critics as especially attentive watchers who then come in and create a new work of art. So my job as a film critic is not to walk in and be like, this is terrible, or oh, this is amazing. That can be part of the job, but it's certainly not all of it. My job is, um, I like to think about it in terms of ekphrastic writing. So ekphrastic writing is um, in, like ancient Greece, um, you know, you couldn't just take a photo of like a beautiful work of art and then like post it to the internet and everyone could see it. So the way that people would describe um, works of art is to write these elaborate and very attentive poems about the things that they saw that were beautiful. So you, you encounter a vase, you think it's amazing, you write a very elaborate poem about it, people can read the poem and sort of reconstruct it in their mind. That was ekphrastic poetry, and this continued for centuries. But now, you know, if you like the vase, you can just take a picture of it, um, or at this point, like, make a VR video of it and send it to people. So instead, I think of ekphrastic um, work as art about art. And so a good piece of criticism is a work of art in itself, which means it has all those qualities of a work of art, but it is also about art. So what we end up with are um, hopefully reviews and essays that you could read without having seen the original and get something from it and have your view of the world opened up and expanded from reading that piece of criticism. But um, it is not a leech or just like a pure kind of tearing down or something like that. It's this bigger work of art on its own. Um, and what this means is that critics, like any kinds of um, 
viewers bring themselves to the work of art, invest themselves in it, and then describe the work of art that they experienced. I cannot describe the work of art that you would experience if you went to this movie. All I can give you is a sense of what my experience was of this work of art, and then give you permission or maybe some information or something that will help you to have your own experience worth it when you encounter it. And then sometimes it's just to say, please do not bother. Um, I wrote a well, at this point, kind of famously scathing review of the um, Emoji movie last year, which I think may actually not be a work of art at the end of the day. Um, it's just disturbing. But, um, but you know, the, the whole point of that was like, I described it in some detail, so you knew what you were getting into if you went to it. And then I said, the headline was, in fact, do not see the Emoji movie. I try not to write those, though. I don't think they're very interesting. Um, so what critics look like then is something like, Sorry, I'm not seeing the same thing. Something like this. So we have the artist who makes the film, invests themselves in the film. We have the audience who invests themselves in the film. And then we also have the critics, sometimes literally, um, sitting alongside the audience. Sometimes we go see it in a different context. Um, and so we're just like the audience in what we're doing. It's just that we've usually seen about 400 more films uh, that year <laughs> than the audience has, um, and we're bringing to it something other, something different, a, a different set of skills, which is also to say some of the best critics I know are not professionally critics. Um, but So anyone can be an extremely attentive viewer. Um, but what we end up with then is a new work of art. And the critic writes a new work of art, and then Ideally, the audience comes in and then reads that and interacts with it. This is one of the most fun things about being a critic in the digital age. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a, um, the chief film critic at the New York Times and has been there for, gosh, I guess 17 years. And so when he started, it wasn't like you were tweeting about your reviews. Um, and now, and so he would get mail and it would often be like, he said like clippings from the paper with like circled things and like angry comments in the margin. Um, and now people will just tweet right at you, right? And so you can actually have a pretty robust conversation about that work of art and its meaning with people who see it in a totally different way. Um, this is very exciting and very, very unnerving. Um, but a good conversation can happen where I get to understand my own blind spots as a critic, and hopefully um, people are joining in and sort of having their experience of the work expanded. So this, it's like criticism has become a much bigger enterprise than purely whatever review it is that I published on Friday. It then extends for a long time. Um, sometimes to my chagrin, um, especially, I mean, the stories I could tell you, but I, I you know, for instance, wrote a piece of criticism about um, these movies about the Kennedys that have been coming out. And I have been getting so many emails from people who are angry for all kinds of different reasons about writing about the Kennedys. Um, I should have praised them. I should not have praised them, you know. But what I realize is they're all experiencing something very different when they read my piece based on their own experiences that they bring to my piece. So hopefully it's functioning like a work of art. Either that or it's just a bad review, which is possible. So we end up then um, with the work of criticism becoming its own work of art. And that's the hope that we encounter with it. And that, I hope, is what a good reader of criticism would be able to do then, is to come in, invest their own experience, and create that work of art 
um, I've written a review, you're the one who brings yourself to it, makes work of art. Um, the ways that I've heard criticism um, described are interesting. This one is, I think, perhaps you've heard the famous um, fable of the blind men who encounter an elephant, and they each are trying to describe what they're encountering because they're feeling different parts of the elephant. So one feels the tail and says, oh, they don't know it's an elephant. Oh, this is like a broom with a brush, right? And someone else feels the ear, and they're like, what I feel is like a papery flag. And they're all describing pieces of the elephant. Um, there's still an elephant there, but what they're getting is the piece that they're experiencing at that moment. Or I have a friend who talks about um, criticism as everyone in the museum drawing the object, and the thing they draw is the critical work. So everyone's drawing is gonna look slightly different based on the angle that they're looking at it from, based on their level of skill, based on the thing they kind of fixated on. This guy's really interested in the nose, but somebody else was really interested in the skull in the corner, and that kind of comes out in their rendition. So hopefully what we end up with is a plethora of views out there and perspectives and contexts that help to flesh out what the real thing is. I still can't describe for you what it's gonna be like for you to look at the painting, but I can give you a pretty good sense of what it was like for me to look at the painting. Um, and thus, you might come into it looking at something different. Ah, I wouldn't have even noticed the skull if you hadn't written about it. This is especially fun for me, I should say, because um, I bring the, like frequently a heightened religious consciousness to films. Um, so for instance, if you go see um, uh, Alien Covenant, <laughs> which I don't really recommend, it wasn't that good of a movie, but it was loaded with religious references, and if you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and it was great to be able to go in, watch it, and say, aha, I know what this is, and write about those things, and then people would say, oh, I didn't even see that. I was more interested in this sci-fi aspect of it. Or the best example of this last year was um, Mother, Darren Aronofsky's wackadoodle horror film. It's great. Um, but I went and saw it in Toronto. Uh, it was the first press screenings in Toronto. I think it had screened in Venice or something. So it was like we were the second people to see the movie in the world and we're watching the film. And I, the, my friend who I was with started chuckling because he knew my beat is like religion and, and film. And he was like, oh, this movie has a little bit for you. And if you've seen it, you know it's basically the story of the Bible in one really not so horror film that then does some crazy stuff at the end. Um, I left and sat down and wrote my review. Um, people read it, lots of people read it. People really wanted to know about that movie. And then the next day I'm standing in line with a bunch of other critics who were like, well, I liked it, but I felt like the metaphor was pretty heavy handed. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it is, the whole Bible thing is, you know. And they were like, what Bible thing? <laughs> And they, they had seen a totally different metaphor in it. And there were, in fact, I think three or four different distinct metaphors that people were like, well, it's a little heavy-handed about this metaphor. Um, and it was because we were coming to it with totally different contexts. Even people who kind of knew the Bible just hadn't, it hadn't occurred to them that that was what this film was. Um, Aronofsky came out and said it was about environmentalism, which I think is the worst possible interpretation of that movie. Um, but it's the way that we kind of uh, reach the work of art and hopefully bring ourselves to it and then we can see stuff and unfold it or unpack it out of the film. And so we don't see the same movie. I mean, we did see the same movie, but we didn't see the same movie at all. We saw completely different movies. So this is important partly because one thing that 
has been true about the film industry in particular for a long time is that it thinks of defaults um, as, as creators and defaults as audiences and frankly defaults as, as critics. So what does this mean? What I mean is they have their general audience and then they've had niche audiences. And the last couple years have been, um, have made it very clear that the niche audiences, they're, they're like the, the audiences that aren't the mainstream ones, are the ones who are actually driving films to uh, you know, huge success. So, I mean, the most recent one is Black Panther, which just became the third highest grossing film of all time in the US. It just crossed over, it leapfrogged over Titanic, which is a big deal. Um, Titanic was in theaters for a year, so it's a big deal in nine weeks to pull that off. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of the prognostication around the movie said it's going to be a big hit, but it's not going to be that big of a hit. Um, this thing just keeps making money, and it, I think there's an underestimation because it's, you know, it's a movie that's supposed to appeal to a niche audience, which is black people, which apparently are a niche audience, right? Or films that are targeted at women have always been considered to be niche films, right? Um, but there's, that's actually not true at all. What's true is audiences are made up of all kinds of people, some of whom really enjoy seeing people who don't look exactly like them on screen. Um, and we can all kind of invest ourselves in those works of art, and it changes the way we think about box office, about who gets to make films, what kind of stories are worth telling, and which ones are worth investing money in um, as producers in order to create the film in the first place. And this is true for critics as well. Um, I, I learn a lot from critics who have very different life experiences from me because I just would have never seen that film that way. Um, a good example of this, which I was writing about at the end of last year, is um, Catherine Bigelow's film Detroit. Yes, that was the name of it, um, which is a very difficult film to watch. Um, and that's basically what I wrote in my review. But one thing I didn't think about at all, um, so it, it's about these riots in Detroit, um, and it's about these young um, African-American men being basically brutalized in the middle of them, and it's based on historical events. Um, one thing I had never thought about, and a friend of mine wrote about, was how you can tell a lot about the filmmaker by how they render skin tones on screen and the differentiation in skin tones that they bring into the work of art itself. This is a thing I have never thought to think about because I'm like pasty white and that's just sort of been what I've seen on screen for so long. And it was fascinating to think, oh wow, like you can actually learn something from the form of the work of art about the perspective or the blind spots of the filmmaker themselves, who does control things like color, color grading and has to think about what they see on screen. Um, that doesn't, I don't think, make my review wrong, but it did, after I read it, make me reconsider some of the things I had asserted as obviously factual. Um, because now I was getting an additional perspective in it. And this happened all of last year. I think one really good example was um, Wonder Woman, which was super fun, and if you saw it, you probably enjoyed it, um, I hope. But the best part of the film, I think it kind of flattens out at the end and becomes just another superhero film, but at the beginning, um, for the first half hour, they're on this island with the Amazons and they're all women, they're all very strong, they're all fighting. Um, and it's also this like peaceful place and it is, if you watched it, particularly if you watched it as a woman, I think you probably had the experience of thinking this doesn't look like I'm expecting it to. And it was because there was no 
there was, a, there was a different perspective through the camera that was being shot of these women and particularly of their bodies. And that was really stunning and startling, I think, to a lot of people to see how a movie could look different through a different perspective that was different than the history of Hollywood and how um, female bodies have been shot. Um, or there's this movie that I hope I get to stop talking about soon, but Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, Everyone has a very different opinion of this movie. Um, but a lot of the arguments about it were based on some people seeing it as um, a really good example of uh, women's rage, sort of righteous rage. Other people saw it as a terrible, um, as terrible on race, which is also not really wrong. And bringing those things together, you start to fill out the critical picture of the film, right? We have brought all of our experiences into it, um, and we can have that conversation. The, the, the frustrating part of this, and I haven't figured out if this is due to the internet or sort of polarized America or what it is, is that we then tend to say, this is true of this film and therefore it is bad, or this is true of this film and therefore it is great, and we have trouble saying this movie succeed in some things and fails in other things and maybe it, we don't have to decide if it's like okay to watch it or not okay to watch it based on those things but we can have a fuller experience of it. Um, and so there was an enormous amount of discourse around this film uh, thinking about and through that some of which was better than others. Um, but again we come to it sort of with our framework and then what we're trying to do is figure out ways that we can interpret it through our framework and also at the same time, and maybe more importantly, acknowledge that other people are seeing it through their framework as well, and that through understanding their way of looking at the film or the work of art, we're learning not just things about our own blind spots, but also about how other people approach the world. Um, and it's shocking and like really uncomfortable sometimes, and sometimes I discover that I have these blind spots that I didn't even realize I did. Um, but I also can be the person to point those out, hopefully in a in a way that helps people um, become more, uh, more fully inhabit their humanity um, wherever they're kind of coming from. So that's how I've been thinking about it. Um, we have some minutes and I'd love to like have some Q&A or have you guys talk about experiences you've had. Um, again, I can only kind of see you, so um, I will try and call on you and you can speak up. Does anybody have any, anything? or just questions about not that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, people have time to binge watch Netflix shows, so I think they have time to read two, two movie reviews. Um, on the way in or something like that. But I, you know, not everybody does, and I recognize that. Um, I will say, okay, so there's a couple things here. One is, I do really think if you want to make a practice of engaging with art, you really, uh, criticism is part of the ecology of art. It's not separate, it's not this other thing. It's, it really is integral to the whole thing, and I think it's worth making choices based on that. Um, however, um, my preference is to, I have basically three critics who I, I have one who I almost always agree with, one who I almost never agree with, and one who I find interesting. Um, and those are the three people I always read. And then I might read other people, it is kind of part of my job, but those are the three people I try to keep up on 
um, as much as I can. And of course, I'm seeing movies in a different cycle than most people, but not all of them. The other weird thing that I've discovered um, since sort of writing consistently for the internet is that about 50% of people read reviews before they see movies, and 50% of them read after they see the movie. And you're apparently like one kind of person or the other kind of person. And I do think there's a real value to potentially shifting the way you think about where you read reviews to I saw the film and then I want to go read a couple people on it to help them make sense of it for me. Um, writing for people who are reading in order to know if they should go see the movie is really annoying and frustrating. And this is actually like maybe the one time I would say Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic can actually be really helpful there if you just want to know like is it bad. Um, you can just get a number and make your decision, maybe. I don't even really like that. Um, but I do think like the multiplicity of voices is really, really helpful. Um, and it's also helpful to look at old movies that way. I just watched, I had never seen Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place with Humphrey Bogart. I just watched it last weekend. Um, and I immediately was like, I have to go read a whole bunch of things on this because I have no idea what to make of this. And they bring stuff out that I'm like, oh, that's what I was missing, right? Um, but I do think the trouble for critics and and for consumers of art is that um, uh, criticism is increasing, and actually Ebert kind of bears some responsibility for this, um, uh, is inc increasingly kind of a commodity. It's like a consumer report, right? We're supposed to go in and then like tell you if you'll like the movie. I have no idea if you'll like the movie, right? All I can do is give you some stuff and then you can figure it out from there. Um, and I also, you know, my publication and, and I tend to try to write more things that will help you make sense of it afterwards rather than beforehand. Um, if you're gonna use an aggregator, Metacritic is much better than Rotten Tomatoes, just so you know. Yes. People do love reading pans. This is not new. People keep talking about like the internet creating, no, like go read Pauline Kael. Like she was panning everything all the time, loudly, and often I think in a, like wrong, she was wrong a lot. Um, but I think that um, there is a reward to panning things. So one thing I can tell you, again, like based on traffic, is that a five star or one star review will get much, much, much more traffic than it two or three or four star review or three and a half, which seems to be a thing I give a lot. Um, I, I don't know why. I, people just, one thing that is true is that um, pans are often either angry or funny. I try to write a funny one most of the time. Um, and that means they're just like more interesting than someone who's like, Right, um, I've had Rotten Tomatoes contact me, several, uh, almost everyone I know has, and say, we can't tell if this is rotten or fresh. And like, that's a proud moment as a critic, when you're like, I wrote a review and you can't tell if I liked it or not. Um, but it's not rewarded that way. I do, I hate writing those though. And I have, I have a pretty strict set of rules for myself about what movies I will absolutely eviscerate, which is, um, I don't do it to tiny independent films. I would rather not write about it at all because there's a lot that goes on there. The economics are a big part of this. Um, I will do it for a big studio release, 
that shouldn't have ever happened, like the Emoji movie. I will do it for a movie that's so bafflingly bad that you just can't figure out. So The Snowman, I don't know if any of you had the misfortune to see The Snowman, but I don't understand how this movie happened and stars Mike, like Michael Fassbender. I don't know what happened there. And it was hilariously bad, so I had to write about that way. Or a movie that's manipulative. I've written fairly extensively at this point on the God's Not Dead movies. Um, I usually won't come out and just like eviscerate like a mediocre Christian movie because I don't think there's a reason to do that. It's just like wasn't super well made or something. But those ones I feel like are actively bad for people um, in all ways and yet they are, they make a lot of money. And so um, those I will just come out and take apart if I can. Um, but if it's not manipulative, and it's not big budget, then you know you try to sort of give some space for people to see what it could have been. Um, and the best negative review, I think, is the one that um, I try to frame it for my students in terms of lament rather than evisceration. Um, because really what I'm saying is I can see what this could have been and it missed the mark. And that's, that's the hope. But the emoji movie just needed to go. That was so bad, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. Well, so, so on the three billboards point, this was the 19th of 20 films that I saw at Toronto in five days. Um, and I didn't have a very strong reaction to it off the bat. I went in and um, I just didn't like it very much. I love McDonough and I was like, eh, it's fine. Like, it's okay. And then it won an award, it won the People's Choice Award, which was a big deal at Toronto. And I thought, oh, this is actually gonna go somewhere. So I just let that happen. Um, ha but like typically at a festival in a week, I will see between 20 and 30 movies. Some of them will be completely forgettable and some of them will be the best picture winner. Like I saw Shape of Water there and Lady Bird and several other things. Um, so the, the, it's, it's like being an athlete. I've been doing this for 11 years and I have developed the muscle, I think, to be able to go in fresh to pretty much every movie. I can't really do that. I mean, I'm a human. I walk in, I'm like, I already know, like I'm, there's a new Lars von Trier film playing at Cannes and I'm going to Cannes and I really hate Lars von Trier films. And I'm already, and he described it as a celebration of how life is horrible and has no meaning. And I was like, yeah, I'm really not gonna like this movie, but I'm still gonna go in with the hope, like surprise me, right? And I learned this from a friend who's a prominent film critic who I met one time for a drink and then he said, I have to go see Krampus. Do you remember this Christmas film? And I was like, oh no, I'm so sorry. He's like, it could be good. <laughs> I was like, that's gonna be on your tombstone. Like, it could be good. Um, but there is this like hope that you have to really, really generate hard when you're a critic, especially when you write about movies, which is like 50% ridiculous and 50% sublime. Um, this, this time it could be great. 
And, and then sometimes you're surprised. I mean, the best viewing experience, one of the best viewing experiences I had last year was going to see Get Out um, in the first press screening and being in this room full of critics where we thought we knew what movie we were gonna see and we were excited for it because everybody likes Jordan Peele and like, you know, but we thought we were gonna get like, you know, a stoner flick basically because that's what his last movie was. And then it turned out to be this like amazing work and you could feel the excitement break over the audience about 20 minutes into it when it was clear that this was not the movie we thought we were seeing. Um, and that's what you live for. And you have that experience like 10 times during the year, but you're like going for it. So it's a little bit like being a tornado chaser, I think. Um, and with the attendant tiredness. Um, and the other thing that helps is almost every good critic I know is also extremely devoted to some other kind of form of art, whatever it is. Um, some people just really love television and they just don't write about it. Or um, I try to read a lot of fiction. I know people who go to concerts basically to refresh themselves and it, it gives them like a new perspective on their form so you don't dive too far down the rabbit hole. Yeah. The screenings? Yeah. At festivals you do. Yeah, you walk in, you know who the director and the cast are. Um, and like, you know, normal screenings of normal films that don't go to festivals are that way. But, the, you know, you can't see everything at a festival. So then I wind up going to movies that have buzz from other people who've seen it already. And that's really hard. That's like the, that's the job's hazard. Um, because I can be too influenced by someone else's opinion and thus see it wrong. I have definitely seen movies wrong. Thankfully, I've done it long enough that I know, like, I was just not in the right place for that movie, and I'm going to go back and see it again. I actually had that experience with Phantom Thread, um, Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, which I have now seen four times, kind of by accident. I just kept ending up seeing it. Um, and that movie does not yield itself on first viewing. Like, you do not know what movie this is. Um, and then you kind of, it unpacks itself over time. Um, so it can, that can be a good effect. Um, I try really hard to make sure that I've seen it correctly before I write about it. I can't always do that, but like I saw every Best Picture nominee last year, which was just a mistake. I just happened to, I guess, know what they were going to be intuitively, but I saw all of them twice before I wrote about them just to make sure I kind of was in the right place. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you, there's a lot of things you can't know or it would be spoilers, right? That said, I didn't write about Avengers um, because it's a long story, but one of my colleagues ended up writing about it. Um, and I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it this weekend. I know everything that happens in that movie. Um, and I'm still, like, kind of interested to see how they pull it off. Um, and there are some people who would feel like they, if they go into a movie and they have a spoiler that, like, it's wrecked or something. I don't believe any of that. I think a good, a good movie should be a good movie, even if you know what the twist is. Yeah. This is the most boring possible interpretation. Yeah. Authors, okay, I did actually get in trouble for saying this once. I think filmmakers rarely have any idea what it is they made. Or like a filmmaker who makes a really good movie rarely knows what it is they made. And I didn't understand this at all until um, I was getting an MFA 
in creative nonfiction writing, which is about as far off the like art grid you can get, but you can get an MFA in it. And I realized that like so much about art making is intuitive and you kind of like a good artist really kind of like goes with their intuitions and doesn't always fully capture or realize what it is that they have done. And like mother in particular is fantastical and kind of like almost like a poem. It's, it's, it's a strange movie. Um, and all of his films are a little bit, every time I've heard him, I love all his films, all of them. And every time I've heard him talk about one, I'm like, no, that's not right. <laughs> like, or or you, you, you have boring ideas about your own movies. <laughs> um, sorry, Darren, if you hear me say this. Um, and that's not every filmmaker. The reason I learned this though, is I used to listen religiously to um, Elvis Mitchell's show on KCRW, which is podcast, I think it's called The Treatment. And he just interviews directors. And he's a really good interviewer. And one of the things he always comes to a point in the interview where he says, well, it seems to me like all of your films are about X or like there's this theme that runs. And almost without fail, the director's like, oh, huh. And that's telling to me, like, oh, they don't always, you know, it's not like, it's not like you go in and you, like, know what you're going to do and then you do it and then you're done. There's, like, this process of discovery in art making. Um, and I do think Arnofsky thinks it's a film about environmentalism. And he's not wrong. It definitely is about, like, the earth and destroying the earth and stuff. Um, but he filtered it through this mythology that like is in a lot of his movies and I'm not sure he realizes that he's obsessed with that mythology. Um, so someday when I get to sit down with him, blow his mind. <laughs> we'll see. I have two minutes, so I think we have one more if, if anyone has one. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard um, because I try to err on the side of... I don't think critics should go in with a hermeneutic of suspicion um, to art. I just don't... At least film critics. Maybe there's other... I don't do it. I think that I should go in as willing to believe that the filmmaker was, you know, that this is an act of honesty and kind of their authentic attempt to express something about how they see the world. Um, and thus, most of them don't end up making, like propaganda is, is, is a thing someone makes in order to make you believe something, right? Um, on the other hand, there are definitely propagandistic films out there, obviously, this is, tied up with the history of film. Um, I had some students who presented on this recently in class and brought up the fact that like Walt Disney made a bunch of propaganda films. Um, and that can be hard to detect. And you know, I think sometimes I would rather give someone the benefit of the doubt. Um, that said, like if you're making an independent film in particular, you go through so much blood and sweat and tears to get this thing made that usually you're not doing it for propagandistic purposes um, in the way that I think a studio can uh, sometimes. Or, um, I mean, frankly, like Christian movies often fall into this category because they've gone in in order with, like, they led with the message rather than leading with some sort of authentic, like, exploration of characters and things like that. 
um, which is like a whole different conversation for a different time. Um, but yeah, I mean, my perspective is that if you're a critic and you're going in expecting everyone to have gone the propaganda route, then you're gonna see that. But it's sort of like, to want someone with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know? Like, that, that's not true a lot of the time. Um, and I think if we're respecting the art form and respecting the artist, then we want to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt as much as we can. Even if we ultimately don't agree with the message that they came up with or, you know, I don't. I, I talk about this um, sometimes thinking about the Coen brothers, right? Like, the, I love the Coen brothers' films. They do not have a worldview that matches my own, but when I watch their films, I start to understand what it might be like to think the way they do about the world. And that's actually very helpful for me, I think, to just see that, like, not everybody looks at the world through the same framework as me. Okay, that is all the time we have, but thank you for coming. It's very helpful.